That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hello, and welcome to Gem State, The Trials of Chad and Lori Daybell. The jury has just come back with a verdict. After roughly six hours of deliberation, following a six-week trial, the jury has found Lori Vallow Daybell guilty on all counts. The verdict was read out in front of a packed courtroom. The scene outside the courthouse was not much better. Angela Kerndall, a reporter that has been in the courtroom each day of the trial, reports seeing many people leaving the court with tears in their eyes. Obviously, emotions are running very high for many people, as a sort of catharsis seems to be setting in through many people now that there's finally a verdict in this case. Larry and Kay Woodcock addressed the media immediately after the verdict was read out. Kay and Larry are JJ's grandparents. Now, Kay is the reason this whole thing began. If you remember back to episode one, Kay was worried that she had not been able to get a hold of JJ. She called the police to have them do a welfare check on JJ. That welfare check is what ultimately led to the investigation that led to where we are today. Larry, in an emotional speech to the media, said, quote, I love you. Papa wishes you were here. Ty Lee, Papa loves you. Tammy, I never met you, but you are part of our life. I'm so sorry for what happened. My heart hurts for these three. Larry, you said it best. I think all of our hearts hurt. As a community, just as a human being, we collectively mourn their loss. With everything that has gone on, I think it's important to remember that emotions might be running high, I think we've seen a lot of comments online such as, you know, I think a lot of people are, are clamoring for, for Lori's death. There's a lot of people with very heightened emotions right now. I think it's important to remember at the end of the day, though, that this was about two children that were murdered. Two innocent young people who were, who were brutally taken from, from us, their lives cut short. And I think that's a, a difficult thing that we as a community, we as a people, we as, a, as human beings have to wrestle with. Judge Boyce announced that the sentencing hearing won't be for a few months. 
earlier this morning, I got the opportunity to sit down with local defense attorney Ryan Black. He's with Attorneys of Idaho. Ryan was able to shed some insight, some some light on what it's like to be a defense attorney, what it might be like to be a defense attorney in a trial like this, the struggles that they face, the you know, how how you wrestle with being on that side of the table, so to speak. I think it's a really interesting interview. I really enjoyed getting to sit down with Ryan. I think now that we have the verdict and we we understand, you know, where where everything where all the chips have fallen. I think now is a a good time to to hear that interview and to see what Ryan has to say just to shed a little bit more insight as to what it might be like to be sitting at that that end of the table, so to speak. Let's hear from Ryan. Thank you for being here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're we're excited to have you. I know. Uh, let's, let's dive right in. You said you've listened to the podcast, but you've not followed along with this trial necessarily. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I've, okay. I've been catching up the last few days listening to you on speed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Doing a little, uh, little catch up on the, the homework. Yeah. One of the things right out of the bat that is specific to this trial, I wanted to ask you about. Now, closing arguments just happened on Thursday. The defense made a motion for what's called Rule 29 to the judge. Can you explain what what is Rule 29? What What's going on there? Yeah, it's Idaho Criminal Rule 29. And you do that, I mean, you do that in a lot of cases, but really what it means is, judge, there's not enough evidence here for a jury to convict this person. So I'm asking you to enter an acquittal for me. So just take it out of the jury's hands completely. And you can make that motion as soon as the state's done presenting their evidence. You can also make the motion once the jury's actually back in the jury room deliberating and up to 14 days after they come back with the verdict. So there's kind of some options there, but generally it's kind of a Hail Mary option to see if you can't get the judge to acquit your client based off of, let's say they didn't prove venue or they forgot to prove, you know, by venue, I mean the county, right? They didn't prove that it happened in Rexburg or in Idaho in general. So those are the things that sometimes we'll win those motions on. Interesting. Okay. But so, uh, so you, you said this is, this is really a Hail Mary. You're me, you know, you, you're not, they weren't necessarily expecting this to be a a case winner. Yeah. You, generally, the, the Rule 29 is a bit of a, I mean, it's a big swing. You know, you don't often win them, but when you do, it's a, I mean, it's a big win, right? You take it right, right out of the jury's hands and you're done. Right. I think that was shocking to a lot of us who are not lawyers um, who, who've been following along or, or reporting on this case to see the defense when they made that motion. They said, Judge, the, the, the prosecution has not proven their case. There's just not enough evidence here. We're we're asking for a rule 29. We're asking you to acquit Lori. And I think a lot of us were kind of taken aback. And now that's out of just our ignorance to how that all that works. But it, it was kind of a shocking thing to see. Yeah. yeah, there's some things we do as defense attorneys like that. Another one's to pull the jury. So anytime I get a client that's convicted, you can have, have the judge actually ask each individual member of the jury, do you agree with this? So we do things like that just to cross our T's, dot our I's, and make sure that it's going forward the correct way. So what would happen in that instance if one person said no or, 
maybe you're kind of waffling. What what happens then? It could be a mistrial, which means the judge says, "Look, this is not a unanimous verdict. I'm gonna we're gonna basically just restart the case. New trial. Come back in a month." Wow. He could, or um, I mean, in this case, the judge could take the jury, put him back in the room, and say, "Okay, well, uh, this doesn't sound like it's unanimous. If you take some more time, would you come up with a verdict together?" Gotcha. And so, if the jurors say no. You know, no matter how much time you give us, we're not going to come to a verdict. Then that would be a hung jury, and that would be a mistrial. Gotcha. Well, I think for a lot of us, especially who've been reporting, and I'm sure a lot of the family members and people who've been directly, you know, impacted by this as well, really don't want to see that happen. So we're going to keep our fingers crossed that that's not the case. I had a another question for you. As far as what is the strategy for you as a defense lawyer? The prosecution in this case backed up what well, a proverbial Brinks truck worth of evidence. They had 63 witnesses testify, dozens of whom are law enforcement personnel ranging from the FBI to Rexburg police detectives. We had Arizona police up here. Uh, we had police from Hawaii here. Um, DNA analysts, everybody. So they, they backed up the Brinks truck on this. What, what is your strategy? If you're, def you know, you're defending somebody who's in a, a similar situation. What, what do you, what, like, what's your strategy at this point? Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, whenever you're preparing a case, regardless of the evidence against you, you always want to try and find some theory of innocence, some way of explaining to the jury, this is why my client isn't guilty. And not just not guilty, this is why my client is innocent of these charges. And so sometimes there's just really, it's really difficult to find that theory. It's a bit of a needle in a haystack. And so sometimes you end up doing a reasonable doubt case, which is they just have not proven this high enough, right? Reasonable doubt's a really, really high burden for the state to get to, right? There isn't a, another explanation that's reasonable. And so sometimes that's what ends up happening, right? Is a reasonable doubt trial where you're just trying to find ways of poking holes in the state's evidence because you don't have any evidence to present. And so it seems like, uh, you know, a case where you don't have any witnesses, you don't have any evidence. And again, I mean, it's, it's your constitutional right. You don't have to testify. You don't have to present any evidence as a defense attorney. Um, your job there is to protect your client's constitutional rights. And generally, the hope is that you can start to put on some sort of case of innocence, some theory of innocence, and tie that together using um, the state's witnesses. Sometimes you can use the evidence that they're bringing in against them in some clever ways. But um, again, I, I have not been privy to enough of this case to tell you whether or how or <clears throat> or in any way to respond to that. Yeah, no, I, that that's totally fine. I think one of the things I did notice in this case specifically was we we didn't hear much from the defense. Even in cross-examination, the there was really only a few times of note that they actually got up and actually were really getting into it. A lot of times um, I heard the defense was really in their cross-examination was really just going for what are your qualifications? Where did you go to school? What, you know, what makes you qualified to provide this evidence? Is that for a specific purpose? Are they looking for something there? Or is it just because he feels he needs to get up and say something? Um, specifically to this case, that's a tough question because I don't I don't know. Right. Um, I mean, I can give you some general examples. You know, in, 
cross-examination, you can usually um, try to impeach the witness. So a lot of the times if you're going after a witness's qualifications or education history, then you get in there and you say, look, this person can't offer this type of conclusion because they're just, they don't have the training. They don't have the experience. They haven't done this enough to be able to tell you that this is the way that it is. And so a lot of the times if I'm up there trying to go after someone's credibility as an expert and say, look, this person only has a, you know, uh, an associate's degree and they're trying to tell you that they are an expert on DNA testing. Like we want a PhD in here to talk about that. And so I'm not sure to what extent that's what's going on in this case, but that's generally what the impeachment looks like if you're going after qualifications. Sometimes with a with a witness, you know, if I don't think it's important, I don't think this person added anything, then I'll just say no questions. Because that's telegraphing to the jury as well that I don't care about this guy. They didn't have anything to say, right? This doesn't matter. Gotcha. Interesting. Um, now, Knowing that the death penalty was removed, or maybe you don't know, but the death penalty was removed um, from this case, uh, the defense decided not to put Lori Vallow on the stand. In your opinion, and again, you know, we're not holding you to this. I know, as you said, you have not followed every every piece of this trial like we have. If you were in a similar situation, uh, you know, you had a client facing similar situations. How do you make that decision whether or not to have your client testify? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, the biggest thing though is it's never your decision as an attorney. It's mm. your client's unequivocal right to decide whether to testify or not. And you can advise them, you know, I think that if you testify, this will help your case in these ways and it'll hurt your case in those ways. But you never get to make that decision for the client. Gotcha. And so that's not her counsel's decision. It's hers. Interesting. Okay. Very very good to know. I think a lot of us, myself included, was under the impression that this was the defense's choice saying, no, this is going to hurt hurt the case. This is going to hurt your chances. That's, that's interesting. So the final say is really hers. Always. Got it. Now, in the months leading up to a, a big case, some, you know, something like this, what, what, what does it look like as the defense in preparation for something like this what do you what are you doing what's happening kind of behind the scenes in in the lead up yeah um again good question it's this is that's the most fun part of being a defense attorney is figuring out your trial strategy you always want to come up with some sort of hook and theme and and reason for like i said before a theory of innocence right and you can tell that story through anybody you want to through the expert witnesses that the state has through your own witnesses through your client um just through your opening and your closing. And really that's that's where you decide how to put the thing together. Kind of like a Lego set, but there's no instructions. You gotta kind of make up the instructions yourself. So, I mean, you kind of have to cast a play almost in a way. You figure out who your characters are. You cast some heroes, some villains. You figure out how they interact to each other and how they relate. Because the idea is you have to find a way to capture the narrative and explain it so that your client is innocent. And so that's what the whole preparation's all about, is you figure out who is this person in relation to my client and how are they gonna help me? How am I going to get them to say the things that I need them to say? And so that's why cross-examination is so powerful, is because you kind of get control of the situation after that person's done telling their story and you get an opportunity to recraft that story through your narrative and explain it in a way that helps your client. So that's, it just changes from case to case, right? There's there's no simple answer and there's no simple path to a, you know, not guilty verdict, but each thing's kind of its own monster. Yeah. 
Interesting. I think one of the things that I, and I'm curious, and again, this is this case specific, but more just in broader terms, I'm curious what, what you would do in this situation. Now, Chad and Lori were originally charged together. And then this year, actually just a few months before we actually went to trial, their case was severed. My understanding was that was largely because Chad waived his right to a speedy trial. Lori did not. And so the state had to bring her to trial. Now, when with the severing of that, that forced Lori had to go to trial now. Is that a strategy that the defense might be trying to employ? Or is that something, is that Lori saying, I just want to get this over with? Obviously, I know that, you know, you don't know how have the inside track into, into their conversations, but from an educated guess, what is that? Is that a strategy you might employ or, or what do you think is happening there? Yeah. Speedy trial again, that's, that's kind of one of those things like your client testifying, right? She has the unequivocal right to have this done within six months or a year from the information being filed. That's the, the final charging document after she gets through the grand jury or the preliminary hearing. And six months or a year depends on whether you're looking at Idaho statutes, the six months or the constitution says a year. But, <clears throat> excuse me, the way it played out for her here was a huge win for the defense team. The fact that they were able to take the death penalty off the table because of the discovery sanctions that the, the court here fought, or I guess the court here levied against the state, taking the death penalty off the table. That's a just astronomical win for their team. And so I'm not sure if it was a strategy decision or not, but it played out for them really well. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Gotcha. Now, you you just made reference there uh, to something else that, again, might kind of get into the weeds legally, but something that I think a lot a lot of us have been confused about, which is when... What what was that that the judge is saying when he says, um, what you just mentioned that they levied the uh, discovery? Uh, how did you phrase that again? Sanction. Sanction. Um, what what is that? What what happened there? So that's a that's a good question. I don't know if I can answer it really greatly because I don't know. I'm, I, I wasn't in the courtroom, but I've read a little bit about this. Um, generally, what happens is as you're leading up to a trial, there's always a discovery deadline date. And that's the date that everything the state has and everything the defense wants to use has to be turned over to the other side, unless it's impeachment, unless it's something that's secret that you're allowed to use without turning it over. And so 
my understanding is that the state had a chunk of evidence that had not been turned over yet. And the judge decided that wasn't willful, right? They weren't doing it on purpose. They weren't trying to be sneaky. But because the defense isn't going to have time to get this all together, prepped and ready for her trial, she's not going to waive speedy. So we're going to trial regardless. He can't let him kill her. Right? You're taking death off the table because it's going to be such a huge appellate issue if they go to trial without her waiving and they have all of this discovery out there, that's grounds for a new trial, that's grounds for all different types of appellate issues if he were to leave death on the table and she were convicted with a death sentence. And now, so, does that is that still potentially an issue going forward even without the death penalty? As far as the discovery section goes, yeah. it could be, but um, I, I can't speak well enough to sure. you know to this case specifically to of know. I'm, a case like this is always gonna get appealed no matter what. Gotcha. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a new trial, but this case will be gone over with a fine tooth comb. It'll go to the Supreme Court and they will issue decisions about it. It wow. may go back down to the appellate court um, in Idaho. The way that they appeal things is kind of wonky, but gotcha. yeah, it, it will be likely appealed and um, wow. yeah, we'll see what happens in the years to come. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you also mentioned there that there are certain things that are not um, that you can hold back as a secret that you want to use. Now that doesn't fall under Brady. Is that how that works? So that's more for a defense perspective, I guess what I'm saying, because um, oh. the discovery rule is, is uh, it goes both ways, right? Defense has to turn over. Hey, let's say I want to use an expert witness. I've got to give the state their qualifications, their opinions, their address, their name, all that stuff before that discovery deadline. Let's say I've got some information about a state's witness that shows that they lied about a bunch of stuff. I don't necessarily have to turn that over if I'm not going to present it in my case in chief. I only have to, I, I don't have to turn that over if I'm just going to use it to show that their witness is lying at the trial. Mm, I see. Okay. So it's not necessarily something that's evidentiary in value. It's something that maybe is tactical. Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, how how much are defense attorneys talking to their client outside of the courtroom D during a trial like this? They're, obviously, you're in court all day, right? They've been starting at 8.30, going until 3, 3.30 every day. Are they then going back to you spend time with Lori and talk about how everything's going? Are they going home afterwards? What, what does that look like? Just the behind the scenes. Yeah, that's Do they go golf at 3.30? What, what's happening? I don't. But um, yeah, that's a tough one. Again, I can't speak to what they're doing in this of case. Of course. But, I, I mean, yeah, just I, generally. I, you know, when I'm in a big trial, I'm, I've got a trial for it's going to go for a week or so. Generally, I'm going to always meet with my client afterwards and just kind of sit down and debrief the day. Here's what happened that's bad for us. Here's what happened that's good for us. And here's what we're doing tomorrow. Go through that. Make sure they don't have any questions. Make sure they're up to speed and ready to go the next day. And then you got to take care of yourself as an attorney. I mean, especially a case like this. This is rough. Yeah. They are just blowing through a ton of witnesses on both sides. I mean, the direct examinations, cross examinations, and then getting ready for everything the next day. You got to go over your notes. Make sure you you know kind of compartmentalize what happened in the day that just happened. Make sure you're taking those notes and getting them ready for your closing at the end, and then getting ready for what's going to happen the next day. So you can't spend the whole evening with your client, but you have to to some extent kind of debrief them, and then get ready for tomorrow, and then make sure you get a sl some sleep. Right. Yeah, man. There there was a few instances in this trial where the prosecution kind of late in the day 
as in physically late in the day, eight, eight or nine o'clock was turning over exhibits that were going to be displayed the next day. The only thought that I had was, okay, so the defense just didn't sleep last night. Like they have to go through this whole thing and they didn't get it until eight o'clock at night. That's, that's gotta be a rough, a rough go. Yeah. Usually in a case like this, I mean, I guess not necessarily in a case like this, but usually in a trial case, um, any sort of exhibits will have been pre-disclosed and pre-marked, but usually as a courtesy, you're going to be telling the other side, look, I'm going to talk about, you know, exhibits seven through 12 tomorrow. And here's copies of them just so you've got them today. So we can skip the rigmarole tomorrow. I see. Whenever you're introducing an exhibit in court, you have to show it to opposing counsel, make sure they've seen it, can identify it as a previously marked exhibit, and then you can show it to the witness. And so by exchanging those things the day before, it just kind of speeds things up a little bit. So I'm sure defense had those and maybe they didn't, but generally with an exhibit, they'll have, you know, we're going to exhibit, you know, how many were there in this case? Do you know? How many different exhibits? Yeah. Oh, uh, several, several, probably 70, 80 or so. I'm sure that they've all been disclosed because otherwise there's, again, discovery sanctions of exclusion or other issues. But um, generally those all have to be pre-marked and explained to the court and opposing counsel beforehand. Gotcha. Okay. So we know a lot of what's what's happening through throughout the day for we're seeing and hearing from both both sets of counsel. What what's happening with the defendant um during the trial? A lot of times we see in this case in in particular we've seen Lori might be taking notes or she might be, you know, whis- whispering to to her her attorneys. But a lot of times she's just sitting there just watching what's happening, just like everyone else. What What's happening from the defendant's point of view? Like, are they just sitting there? They're, they're just passive at this point. Is that right? Generally, yeah. I, I always try and give my clients something to do because it's, I mean, it's terrifying to be in court, especially if you're the accused. And so I always try to make it a little bit more interactive because if you're doing something with your hands, it, it keeps you more engaged and it, it, it relieves some of the fear. And that's a big part of being a defense attorney is putting people at ease and helping them through this process, regardless of circumstances. And so I always try and give my client a notepad, a pen, and some sort of homework to do while we're doing it. Hey, you know, watch this witness and see, you know, write down any notes you have, any questions you have for me. Another big thing that we always talk to our clients about is just make sure not to try to talk to me directly while this is happening because I've got to be on point. I've got to be watching that witness, making sure they're not saying anything objectionable. And if you're talking to me while I'm listening, it divides my attention and I have a much harder time you know, being on the ball. So I always give them a notepad and say, write your questions down, write your issues down and try and you know identify some homework for them to have throughout the process. Gotcha. Interesting. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what happens kind of behind the scenes just, and this is more just the, the kind of procedurals, but where, where's the defendant taken during breaks? Uh, how many people are with the defendant? You know, in this case, what would Lori typically be just left alone in a room? Does she go back to like a holding cell? What just kind of the the actual workings of it. So I'm guessing, and I know I don't know too much about where she's at. Is she being housed at the County jail? I think so. Yes. So generally where they do that is they, they have a transportation team at the County um, that works closely with the trial court administrator's office. And so they will actually transport her back to the jail every night. 
in Ada County. She's probably being housed there. Mm-hmm. And then they take her to a, an area in the basement of the courthouse. They call J2. It's the holding at the very in the very basement. Uh, and they've got visiting rooms back there. But it's generally, I mean, it's a big open room in the basement that they put, um, you know, defendants in. And then they have some little holding areas down there. So if she's not currently in court and she's in custody, then there is another little room kind of back off to the side of the actual courtroom that's only admissible through with some special keys that the the marshals have. So they'll go in there, they'll put her in a little um, conference room, and she can go back, uh, her attorneys can go back and chat with her to the extent they need to, and then they'll take her downstairs to the basement, J2, and then they put her on a bus and back out to the county at the end of the day. Gotcha. What, in your experience, what it what's your relationship like with prosecutors? Do you have a good working relationship with prosecutors? Obviously, that's kind of a very generalized yeah. question. I like to think so. I mean, I, I I like a lot of the prosecutors I work with. I like to call them my coworkers. I'm not sure if they always see it that way, <laughs> but um, there's some really great people in that office, um, especially the Ada County Prosecutor's Office and the Boise City Office here in town. Um, and I'd like to think I have a good working relationship. How? So, okay, that's another question I had for you. How much of an impact it's... Friday morning, late morning when we're talking, how much of an impact does the the coming weekend have? Obviously, we like to think that the jury is going to be very fair and impartial and they're going to do all their due diligence. Human nature is at play here. They've been in trial for this is week six, I believe. Seven, I think, if you include the the all of their pre um, the jury selection and everything, they've been at this for a long time. It's now in their hands. They're staring down the barrel of Mother's Day weekend, right? Yeah. Human nature is a thing, right? Like yeah. that's that's still got to be taken into account. How much of an impact do you think it's Friday? Guys, let's wrap this thing up. How much of an impact do you think that plays? Um, I would hope not much. You know, they've been in this for a long time. And the judge, and the way the jury instructions are written, it, it really helps empower the jury to understand that this is, I mean, this is a really high calling. Right? This is a, a constitutional calling that's part of your identity as an American citizen. And so, you know, it, I know it's tough to have to go home over the weekend and not talk to your mom about the case <laughs> and not listen to the podcast and stuff like that. But right. I mean, these they're, they're going to take it seriously. I've never had a bad Im- experience with a juror and I call every single juror that I can after every single one of my trials. Really? And I talk to them. Yeah. And I and every single one of them has always taken the case very seriously. Um, people are smart. They're yeah. considerate and they're deliberate. And I think that they're going to do a good job and they're going to sit down and take this seriously. What, what do you mean? You just said you call after the case. Or after the trial, yeah, you calls me. What do you mean? Is that just to say thank you for serving, or is that you're trying to understand what happened in the the deliberations? A little bit of both. I mean, I every time that it, somebody has to sit there and listen to me for a week or a day or however long we're in trial together, I just want to see what they thought. You know, what did I do wrong? What did I do well? Uh, what did you hate that I said? And then just thank you for being a part of the system. Interesting. Yeah, I do, okay. I learned so much from the jurors every time I talk to them. Wow. Now, is that common amongst your peers or is that something just that you do? I haven't heard of that before. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think a lot of attorneys do it. Um, I, I've i never had a bad experience doing it. So I've been doing this for a little while and I still right. do it every single one of my cases. No kidding. Because I'm, I mean, you still learn every time you talk to somebody. They'll pick out some little thing you did and say, man, I really didn't like it when you did that. And you say, man, I did not even realize I was doing that. 
You Interesting. Know? I had somebody tell me I chewed my cheeks too much when I was listening to a <laughs> to somebody testify. And I said, okay, I won't do that anymore. <laughs> Thank you. That's, wow. That's yeah. It's got to be an interesting insight. I think one of the insights that Sarah and I have gotten through through this progress or process here is that when you're having, just having a conversation with somebody, you may not realize how many times you say, um, or like. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to ask questions on the fly. You know, we're, we're trying to have just a, a conversation. You may not realize that that's in it until you make the absolute rookie mistake of reading the comment section on the podcast. It's <laughs> <laughs> always got to be brutal. That was, that was one and done not reading comments anymore. I, <laughs> I still have to yeah. uh, be able to look myself in the mirror. Um, yeah. But I think that's a that's a really interesting insight into uh, just just into being a defense attorney. I want to I really want to thank you for taking this time to be here with us to to give us just a little bit more insight into what's going on. Yeah, it's been awesome. Thanks for bringing me on. Absolutely, we'd we'd love to have you back sometime. That'd be great. Anytime. Thank, thanks again. Yeah. This is Gem State, the trials of Chad and Lori Daybell. You can follow along with our local reporting at IdahoNews.com. You can also follow us at CBS2Boise on Twitter and on Facebook. We'll be back next week.